This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 16. Episode 22. This is Writing Excuses. Scenes and set pieces. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm Cassandra. I'm Dan. I'm James. And I'm Howard. And we are talking about scenes and set pieces today, and we've got a lot to cover, so we're just going to jump right into it. James? Yeah. Get us started. So when I'm designing an encounter or a scene or whatever you want to call it, um, I like to break it up into several different categories. So I like to think about the setting, the challenge, you know, the adversaries, uh, the rewards, and also story development. So we're going to hit each of those in turn. And I just want to start off with, um, so for setting, uh, Cass, oh, yeah, Mary Robinette. Well, I just want to say, I just want to jump in real fast and say all of the prose writers who've been writing along with this because they're interested and curious about it, this episode in particular has stuff that directly applies to what you do because every point that we're about to hit is something that you should be thinking about in your prose scenes as well. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think Cass and I both write fiction as well, and I'm sure we probably bring everything we've said in this class to those as well. Um, but so I want to just jump right in with uh, Cass. When you're designing the setting for a scene or an encounter, what do you think about? Well, there are two things primarily, the wow factor and the tactical implications of your environment. The wow factor can be a whole bunch of things with Video games in particular, it is all about the visuals, it is all about the audio, and it's also about cinematography. You can have the best graphics in the world, you can have the best music, but if it's a very static kind of thing where it's just character walking in, it's not going to work out for everyone. And it's also about individual imaginative details. In prose, for example, it could be things like how things smell, how things taste, texture, but in games, it can also be about emotional beats. Uh, my favorite example of that is Persona 5. When you start the game, you are midway through a heist. There are people with shadowed faces leading you on through it. And you're running through it. It's great and everything, but it's not terribly impactful because it's weird. However, at the climax of the game, after you have everything explained to you, you actually revisit that first place with the exact same parameters. And it's suddenly so much more powerful because you've just had 40 hours of context drilled into your head. Um, but when it comes to the tactical side, since most of my design goes through actual designers, I'm curious about how you develop them in TTRPGs, James. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, in a game like Pathfinder or Dungeons & Dragons or Starfinder that's uh, all about more or less killing things and taking their stuff, um, or occasionally other, you know, variations on that, uh, environments can be really important to the design of scenes, um, especially combats, because it allows the characters to get really creative. Um, it allows, uh, and it makes, frankly, things seem more interesting than just fighting skeletons in a blank room over and over again. Um, when you add an environment, suddenly the players have a lot more things they can work with. So, for instance, you know, you'll get the players 
coming up with all these interesting ideas where they'll go, okay, well, if I tie the badminton net to the goat and then I scare the goat with the air horn, then they'll run at the end. You know, like players are really creative and you want to give them props to do stuff with. Um, And uh, so that's where I feel like the environment can really uh, be handy, Um, which, oh, Dan, did you want to jump in? Yeah, I was just going to say that this is a lesson that I I learned watching Star Wars movies, actually, uh, because, you know, I the, the first time I played a tabletop war game about spaceships, I very quickly realized that it's super boring because there's no terrain in space. And so there's there isn't really an environment to interact with. It's the absolute epitome of an empty room. And then you watch the Star Wars movies and realize, oh, this space battle, they're running through a trench. This one, they're dodging asteroids. This one, they're flying through debris. Um, This one, there's the big giant shield, and it's all about which side of the shield are you on, and is it going to be brought down in time? There's always some kind of dynamic, interactive element to make those encounters more interesting. So one of the things about the setting that I just wanted to to get in here for prose writers is that the same thing is true. Like when you're thinking about the setting, how is your character going to use that setting? How is it going to play into the overall arc of the story? That brings us right into the second one, which is talking about the type of challenge. Um, You know, I really like variety. Like you were saying, I want to mix up the enemy types uh, or the types of challenges so it just doesn't become wave after wave. Um, and, you know, thinking about challenges that cater to the different character types uh, and player types, because some people are going to want to sneak. Some people are going to want to, uh, you know, battle their way through. Uh, Mary Robinette's probably going to want to make friends with them if they're, you know, giant apple trolls <laughs> like from last episode. Um, so you want to make sure that there's sort of something for everybody. But uh, Cass, what do you think about? Well, the balance is definitely one of the most necessary things, but I think it's also important to focus on the elements that make your game unique. If your game is all about character with an energy whip, create challenges that explore every possible use of that whip, whether it's swinging across chasms, electrocuting things, um, retrieving objects. I remember Deus Ex Human Revolution. I picked up this weird taser like ability and my favorite thing to do would be to knock out people and just very gently it'll like turn the water full of electricity and watch them very gently buzz to death um in an (laughs) rpg you should always make sure that your challenges hinge on character abilities and not just player abilities the players who spend points building a detective should have an easier time solving mysteries even if the player playing the barbarian is you know naturally better at puzzles that's that's so important i feel like i've absolutely Mm -hmm. been in that game where i'm the wizard with the you know the 18 intelligence but I'm naturally just terrible at most uh, puzzles compared to the people I play with. And so it'll be the barbarian being like, no, it's like, you know, it's this and this and this. I'm like, dude, <laughs> you shouldn't know that. And I should. Yeah. The, the first time that I uh, wrote, it was actually an adventure for Starfinder. Um, typically the game writing that I have done has been in much more narrative systems and Starfinder is much more of a crunchy numbers based thing. And so the main comment that the editor sent back after I submitted the first draft was, Dan, players like to roll dice. 
And I realized that I had not really given them any skill checks. It was all based on, you know, just kind of interaction. You can ask these questions and learn this information and then you know where to go. And he's like, no, there's like 20 skills in this game. You haven't used any of them. They put points into those skills and they like to roll dice. Give them a chance to do what they're good at. That sort of reminds me, I think, of my favorite tabletop RPG story that is in mine. There was a comic going around a few years ago of this group of adventurers trying to fight, I think, this orc lord. And everyone was kind of dropping over dead. And it was just terrible. And they were all going to lose. And there was this one dude left. And the dude was like, you know what? Screw it. My character has, like, really high charm. I am going to try to seduce the orc lord. And he rolled a natural 20. And there was just this long pause. And he was like, you know what? I am going to go for it. I'm going to declare my love and just stop this war. And he kept rolling natural 20s. And by the end of the game, his character was leading this orc <laughs> warlord home and going like, mom, this is my new husband. <laughs> <laughs> and see, that's what I love about uh, tabletop role-playing games, because, you know, in a video game, maybe you spend the resources to uh, to build out that possibility, um, you know, even though it's a very, very faint possibility. But in a tabletop role-playing game, you can just change on the fly and go with that. And I think that's really uh, one of the things that has kept games like, you know, uh, Dungeons & Dragons alive in the era of video games. So challenges. If you've been listening to all of these things, the variety of challenges that your character faces in prose is as important as it is in a game. You don't want a character who's constantly just fighting things. You want a character who's having to solve things in different ways and often in ways that do not play to their skill sets. That's what often will make an interesting challenge in prose. Actually, that's a great segue into uh, talking about adversaries. Um, so I think it's really important when you're thinking about the adversaries in your encounter, um, you want to introduce any big bad guys early and give players a reason to care. You know, you want to make things personal. Um, so, uh, yeah, what, uh, what do you folks do in terms of trying to establish a good adversary? Oh. You want to give them a few distinct abilities that are strongly team towards who they are and what they are. And possibly, at least for me, um, have at least one encounter that completely cements their personality. I think a good example of this is Borderlands and Handsome Jack. Very early on, you meet him and you kind of get a sense of exactly who he is and why you should absolutely hate him. And these things need to be done quickly. And if you're, I think if you're designing a tabletop role-playing game, these parameters have to be set very clearly as well. Because players have the whole game to learn how to use a complex character effectively. A game master who is looking at your notes, he only has minutes. Um, I'm curious about what people have done in regards to that feel for yeah. adversaries. Uh, for my for my own part, the, uh, the the word adversary is is hugely informative here. If you run across something, somebody, some animal, whatever, and it just wants to kill you, that's not an adversary. That's just that's just an obstacle. It's an enemy. Mm. 
um, an adversary that I'm going to care about? Well, look, the party and I, we are trying to build a bridge across this stream. But the, the Otter King has decided that there shall be no bridge across this stream, and he takes issue with our entire project, sabotaging us at every turn. But if we don't build the bridge, our eventual plan to unify the clans on both sides, of, you see what I'm going I romance the Otter King. I, yes, please, romance the Otter King, because everybody loves otters. And ultimately, if for the adversary to feel... Uh, to feel real and for us to feel invested, they have to be working logically and passionately and and investedly in something that runs counter to what we're trying to do. I just want to throw out that in my current Starfinder game, I have a player who is literally playing an otter marriage counselor. That's her whole deal. <laughs> and she's incredibly effective. It's We've talked our way through, you know, half the encounters. So the thing with adversaries that we've been talking about and around comes back to a thing that I bring from theater for you prose writers. What's my motivation? You, the Otter King? Like, sure, the Otter King wants to stop you from building the bridge, but why do they want to stop you from building the bridge? That why can make your your adversary often significantly more interesting. So think about what that motivation is. Um, one other thing I want to throw out before we go to our game of the week is that uh, something Cass had said about keeping uh, abilities narrow. Um, this is especially important in tabletop role-playing games, um, and which I always tell people who are designing new monsters or new, uh, you know, adversaries, is that really uh, you're only if you're not going to use an ability in the first, you know, couple rounds of combat. That's often all that an enemy is on stage for, and so uh, you don't want to build an enemy with you know, a dozen different abilities if they're only ever going to use three of them because that just makes it harder for the uh, game master to process quickly. So pick a couple of things and that'll both let the GM know how to run them and let the PCs know how to fight them. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. But let's pause for our book of the week. So book of the week, or game of the week, is uh, Shadowpoint Observatory, um, which is a game for uh, Oculus Quest 2. And it's a puzzle game. Uh, but I picked it up because it's beautiful. Um, it's about observatories, which are totally my jam. And um, and you're trying to solve this thing where this young girl has been ripped out of time. And it's the character uh, that you are, you're going in and you're trying to figure out how to restore her to her time. But because she's been ripped out of time, every time you encounter her, each layer of the puzzle, she gets older and older. And it takes decades in her for her for you to figure this out. And there's this one point, it's a it's a, a spoiler, but this is also like this is the, the kind of excruciating thing that they're doing because you're in this beautiful environment and she begs you not to leave. And you're like, 
but I have to go because I have to finish solving these puzzles in order to bring you back. And it's so painful to walk away from her. And and it's it's just, it's really nicely done. Um, I, I liked it a lot. My dad likes it too. Um, so Shadowpoint Observatory, highly recommended. That's super cool. Uh, before we move on to the next thing, I uh, I cannot get this thing out of my head that Mary Robinette said earlier uh, when we were talking about um, challenges. Uh, she said that for pros, it is often, and, and I would say usually, really important to challenge a character in something that is not their area of expertise, which is the exact opposite of what we were saying about uh, game writing, where often you want to let people do what they are good at. And I think that that's a really key thing to bring out, that in games, the players want to excel. They want to have a chance to use their powers. They want to show how awesome they are. And in fiction, we often kind of want, we we want to let our characters demonstrate their awesomeness, but we also want to force them to be weak and and to overcome those weaknesses, which I think is a really interesting dichotomy. Well, and it's important to remember that when you're doing a game, you're designing for a range of characters, often in a role-playing game, and you don't necessarily know which one you're getting. So you want to make sure that the challenge you design is hard enough to challenge the person who specializes in that particular type of challenge um, so that it's a satisfying thing, but they can succeed. But it still needs to be beatable by characters who aren't specialized in that. And so you want to make sure that you uh, are accommodating for all of the above. Yeah, and and even in in both cases, I think the the thing that will happen is the thing that happens in real life, which is that whatever tools you bring to the table, whether it's your your character is bringing it to the table uh, in prose or or in game, um, they're going to solve it with the tools that they have on hand. So just because the challenge isn't set up for them to 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 be like. This is the, you know, the, the character who in prose who walks into the room and is like, oh, um, there's a lot of people here that I'm supposed to shoot at. And I, I can't I'm, I don't actually know how to use a gun, um, but I'm very good at sneaking. And so they they, they do this, you know, they, they use the skills, even though the challenge in front of them is set up for them to fail. I want to do a quick callback to something. Cassandra said two or three episodes ago about uh, choices, you know, yielding consequences, you know, the reward being consequences. Um, I don't mind failing a challenge in a role-playing game, provided the failure isn't, you know, oh, game over, you know, start again. If, if the challenge, going back to the Otter King, I failed to talk to the Otter King, now we have to fight the entire Otter tribe. Well, that, that's a sad failure because I don't want to fight the Otters, I wanted to befriend the Otters. If you build the challenges in such a way that the failures alter the choices we can make, then failure isn't, failure isn't catastrophic. I feel like in role-playing games, failure should be fun. Yeah. I, I feel like I feel like that is a, a natural segue to, to talking about rewards as part of the, the consequences 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, rewards and even putting rewards and story development together, because in many ways, like you were just saying, they're kind of the same thing. The the rewards, the consequences, the development all fall into the same category. So how do you all handle that? Very carefully, because I feel like <laughs> the, enti- <laughs> the entirety of a player's experience can be ruined Honestly, if they end up with, let's say, equipment that is meant for them in the end dungeon. Now, for some players, again, I am a power player. I am happiest when I can just bulldoze through things. It makes me laugh. But for other players, it just takes away the enjoyment because all the challenges are gone. The, the environment, the varieties they build up, the consequences, they no longer matter if one strike of the sword is enough to stop an adversary cold. So you do not want to end up with a character that is overpowered. And similarly, it's important to track your rewards because an underpowered character is just going to be miserable. The grind isn't fun when you're dedicating a few hours of your life to fun. Yeah, the the thing that I think about in prose is that uh, the rewards are part of the way of letting the reader know that you're making progress. Um, it's not just about the the gear that you pick up, but that, yes, this slog is worth it. Uh, because it's really easy in in prose, you know, we, we talk a lot about yes, but, no, and, and making things worse for the character. And it's really easy to forget the importance of the yes, which is the reward, mm-hmm. even if there's a consequence for that reward. Uh, it's still that that forward momentum, that forward progress is still important to think about. One of the mechanics we built into Planet Mercenary, if players embrace in character their failures, they get role play points. And you can spend role play points to boost die rolls, to re-roll dies, uh, to, to re-roll dice, um, to... There are all kinds of uses for them, and we didn't put limitations per game round on how you spent these. And one of the players in one of the playtests I ran, to my great joy, figured this out so that when we got to the point where it's time to defuse the nuclear weapon, he has accrued all of his role-played failures and plays this stuff down, and bam, the weapon is defused, and nothing about that felt steamrolly. Everything felt earned because he had done such a good job of owning all of the earlier failures. That's great. Um, one one thing about rewards when you're talking about gear, um, and I, I keep ta- I keep talking about Star Wars, and I apologize for that. I don't know why that's the example that leaps to my mind. But uh, when you're talking about giving overpowered gear to a character too early. Luke Skywalker gets his lightsaber like 20 minutes into the first movie. And that's the best weapon in the game, so to speak. But what's fascinating about it is that he, the the reward is not the gear. It's his own skill Mm -hmm. with it. We have to get into the middle section of the second movie before he really learns how to use it. And it's not until the end of the third movie that he gets into a full-blown lightsaber battle where he gets to show off all his skills. And so sometimes rewards are, you know, it can be really valuable to give someone the crazy equipment early on and then just let them learn how to use it. Yeah. Um, last of all, 
what you really do need to consider is how story development ties with the encounters that you're creating. Make sure that your characters are incentivized to actually do the encounters. Make sure there are stakes. They don't need to be big stakes, however. Assassin's Creed Valhalla had this one cat that you could find and take to your boat. And it was a completely separate, quiet quest. And mechanically, it did nothing. It's just a decorative item, but good Lord, it's also a kitty that you can have on your Viking boat for the rest of the game. Uh, James, do you have anything to add on that point before we run away from yeah. the episode? You wanna, yeah, you want to think about how does a given scene push things forward? What are the ramifications? Um, what elements do you want to tag for future reference so that, as we said before, um, you can come, call back to something? What can the outcomes of this scene lead to later so that when three scenes down the road, somebody calls back to a thing you just did, um, you've laid the groundwork for that. Uh, You all had homework for us, I think? We did. Uh, We would like you to design an encounter for a game that you've enjoyed, hitting all of the factors that we've mentioned, setting, challenge, adversaries, rewards, and story developments. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much. This uh, has been a long, but I think really fantastic episode. Uh, This is Writing Excuses. You are out of excuses. Now go write. This has been Writing Excuses. Your hosts for this episode were Cassandra Haw, Mary Robinette Kowal, James L. Sutter, Howard Taylor, and Dan Wells. The episode was engineered by Marshall Carr Jr., mastered by Alex Jackson, and brought to you by our supporters at patreon.com slash writing excuses. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. 